1999, it took $50,000 to buy a server. Once you bought that server, you had to know how to operate it and maintain it. Today, cloud service providers have changed how we build software. Servers, load balancers, networking, storage, these hardware concerns have been turned into software. Don Pizette joins the show today to discuss the fundamentals of a cloud service provider. These are the basics that you need to know about building and maintaining your application in the cloud. Don is a host of IT Pro TV, a company that makes training resources for engineers and operators. Full disclosure, IT Pro TV is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, but I also use IT Pro TV personally. This is not really sponsored content. It's just me interviewing somebody that is a sponsor of the show. If you like Software Engineering Daily, by the way, check out our newsletter, Software Weekly. Every week we spend we send a curated list of articles and blog posts and videos that the Software Engineering Daily team has been enjoying and has curated. You can sign up for the newsletter and you can also join the Slack channel by visiting softwareengineeringdaily.com. Don Pizette works on curriculum for IT Pro TV. Don, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Today we're going to be talking about cloud service providers. What is a cloud service provider? So the idea behind a cloud service provider is instead of you providing infrastructure yourself, you kind of transition that risk and responsibility over to somebody else, some company that is out there, hopefully in more than one location, and they basically take over the IT operations, at least to some degree, for your solution. And what are the minimum services that uh, I would need if I'm going to put my application on a cloud provider? So it, it kind of depends on how far in you want to go, right? They, they make it where you can just kind of dip your toe in and test it out a little bit, or you can go all in complete infrastructure. Uh, it kind of originated even 15, almost 20 years ago when we had co-location, right? Where you set up your own server, you did with the operating system, the software, your application, you were fully responsible for it. But then the server itself was put in somebody else's server room. So uh, you'd reach out to an ISP or somebody that was in a more ideal location than you. And, and in that scenario, really all you're outsourcing there is, uh, you know, power, redundancy, just environmental maintenance, security, as far as physical security. But everything else you keep as part of your own responsibility. But if you go all in where the service provider is providing every single bit of your resource, it's really just the application that you deal with. They take care of the storage, the operating system, the servers, the hardware, security, maintenance, everything. And you just worry about the application you've written, which is really an ideal thing. So that term all in, I saw that in a number of presentations at an AWS summit, uh, people talking about going all in with AWS. And I think AWS was one of the first it was the first cloud provider to really do this uh, to a, to a much larger extent than what people were doing in the 90s maybe in the early early 2000s what are the things that AWS started providing that was markedly different than the quote unquote I don't know if they were called cloud providers back then but whatever came before I think there was something called Slicehost and like some other stuff around then there have been several providers over the years, and I think what differentiated AWS and why they become the 600-pound gorilla is that they didn't initially set out to be a cloud provider. They said, you know, we need this online shopping website, and we need it to be on all the time. And then as their popularity grew, they needed bandwidth, they needed throughput, and they just kept growing, growing, growing. 
But they had this infrastructure that was way bigger than what they actually needed, but they had to have it for redundancy. And so after the fact, they looked at it Friday. and said, yeah, and, and, and on a day like Black Friday, absolutely, they're going to use as much of the resources as they have available. But most of the time, they had equipment sitting there idle. And so they said, you know, why don't we just rent this out to people and let other people use it when we're not using it? And so what you had was this infrastructure that was not specifically designed to be rented out. It was designed for them. And so it was designed really, really well. The other cloud providers, the people like like Microsoft and Google and Rackspace, those guys, they didn't build the infrastructure for themselves. They built it to be rented out. And as a result, they focused on certain small areas and it wasn't a complete solution like Amazon's was. So we've kind of brushed over the top-level parts of a cloud service provider. Let's start delving into some lower-level elements of it. Let's talk about security. In the context of a cloud service provider, what does security mean? All right. Security is is really overlooked in the cloud environment. And part of it is just the confusion of the terminology because you have software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, you know, all, all these different uh, AAS type services that are out there. And the security element varies depending on which one you choose. If, if you go, we'll use that all in term again, right? If we go all in with a cloud provider and, uh, you know, maybe we're doing a Node.js application. And so we, we go into Amazon and we use Elastic Beanstalk and we upload our app in there. We're just responsible for application. And, and the normal security applies, right? If there's any input fields, you've got to do input validation. If you've got stuff like that, you've got to take care of it. That's your application. But you don't even necessarily know what operating system you're running on. So the operating system is being patched and updated by Amazon, and the hardware and firmware is being maintained by Amazon, and and the the hard drive redundancy, power redundancy, network redundancy, all of that is being managed by them, and it becomes invisible to us. And a lot of us don't even think about that. When you think security, we, we think viruses, SQL injection attacks, man-in-the-middle attacks. We don't think air conditioning. We, we don't think uh, locks on doors, right? The, the physical side of it and the cloud providers take care of that. Where things is, get a little... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Why, why is air conditioning relevant to the security discussion? So it, there is a great story about this. Uh, oh, it was maybe 10 years ago where there was a state-of-the-art data center that, I mean, they really did a great job securing their facility. You could not get in without being authorized. Their network was secure. Their firewalls were top-notch. And someone managed to shut them down. And the way they did it was by going to the air handling units outside of the building, and they stuck a crowbar down in the air handling unit to stop the fan from spinning. And if the fan couldn't spin, it couldn't get the hot air out of the building. The hot air stayed in the building, and the server's thermal shutdown. It was a very low-tech attack that basically took the building down. And it doesn't even have to mean an attack. Maybe just an AC unit breaks. If you only have one air conditioning unit and it breaks, you can't keep your servers online. So it's not all about high tech. Sometimes it's just regular resources that we depend on to keep those servers up and going. So when you hear about these, some companies that stay with with on-premise servers because of security concerns, like you hear this a lot from banks or other larger, older enterprises, are the security concerns legitimate or are they stuck in their ways? What exactly are they concerned about? 
Some of them are legitimate, some not so much. I, I used to work for a bank and, and we had what was called SAS 70 compliance and it has a different name now. But uh, but back then the rules were very specific about where we were able to store our financial data. And if we went with a cloud provider, that provider also had to be compliant. They had to meet all the various requirements, even though they aren't a bank, because they're holding our data, they would have to operate like a bank. And if they didn't, it meant the data might not be safe. You know, when, when you go with a cloud provider, you don't just have to worry about your servers. You have to worry about their employees. Do you trust their employees? And I, I make this joke all the time that I'll throw servers in Microsoft's Azure or Amazon's web services, and I don't know a single employee in an AWS data center. I don't know a single employee in an Azure data center. Um, I, I do know some in the Google data centers. But uh, So do you trust these employees that you've never even met? So we've got to make sure that we can trust those employees that the data is being stored safe. And some people choose not to do the whole, uh, you know, software as a service model because it's too much trust. And that if you back off a bit and do platform as a service, so now the provider is, is handling the hardware for you or infrastructure as a service where they're handling the hardware and you encrypt your hard drives and br- run your OS, there's still some exposure to those cloud provider employees and you get risk. So... Those types of companies, they'll usually accept co-location a lot more than they will going with cloud services, but there's no substitute for just maintaining the servers in-house. And that, that doesn't mean you're now suddenly immune to attack, right? You still have your own unique problems, but at least you don't have to worry about the cloud employees. Hmm. Okay, let's move on to talking about networking. How is networking in the cloud different than networking with on-premise servers? Uh, the, the biggest difference is going to be that with most of the providers, when you fire up a cloud instance, it's going to have a public IP. It, it might have a private IP assigned, but it's one-to-one natted with a public IP. Azure does it. AWS does it. Uh, Rackspace does it. You, know, the, you need access to your server, and they do it through a, a public IP. When we bring a server up internally, it's private unless we choose to make it public. The cloud stuff usually defaults to public. So we've got to take steps to restrict that. And if you look at... It, I keep using AWS as an example. They're really kind of all, all the same from that aspect, but uh, but they're the biggest. So we'll, we'll kind of continue. When you spin up a Linux box with AWS, it has port 22 for SSH open to the world. And when you spin up a Windows server in AWS, it's got 3389 for remote desktop protocol open to the world. So anybody could hit that port and attempt to log in, attempt to brute force your server. So that's a a risk we don't have with local servers because we choose what to open. So we just have to make sure that we go through and secure those once they're on. That's the primary difference when you fire something up in a cloud versus firing it up locally. And on the network side, you've got to work to isolate that a little more. And when you're creating your network on AWS, for example, AWS has the notion of a VPC. What is a VPC? What does somebody who is new to cloud providers need to know about a VPC? Sure. Uh, VPCs used to be optional. Now they're required. It's a, a virtual private cloud. So instead of having a public cloud, you create these virtual private clouds, and now they operate more like what we expect. You create a server in a VPC, and it's isolated. And then you use what's effectively a virtual firewall. They're called security groups to define what traffic is allowed to come from the outside to the inside, what's allowed to pass through into that VPC. And you can even use the VPCs amongst your own servers. So I might be one company, but I might have five different uh, VPCs, one that's public-facing, one that is DMZ database servers, one that's internal servers. You You start isolating it like that. And that way, if an outside attacker were to compromise one system, they'd be held within that VPC and not be able to leapfrog into our other servers. It gives you a lot of power. 
Mm. So what are some other usages of VPCs? They're, they're very similar to VLANs. So like in your own server environment, you might use virtual local area networks to create uh, segment and broadcast domains or usually security purposes, optimization. You can use VPCs for the same purpose. The other reason, the, the area where I use VPCs a lot, is you might want to have a cloud that's not public. Maybe that's not your intention. Is I don't want my web server and email server. I want my internal servers up in the cloud because they're going to be more stable. And so we might want to build a permanent VP, VPN tunnel between our on-premises environment and our cloud servers. And so you can create a VPC that has a permanent VPN tunnel to your infrastructure. And now somebody on your corporate network can access cloud servers and local servers at the same time and, and maybe not even notice the difference, which allows us to set up for failover for like a hybrid environment where if our main data center fails – our cloud environment is already up and running. Or if our cloud environment fails, we've got our on-premises equipment that's up and running. Now we get the best of both worlds. There are companies that are explicitly focused on networking. Like I think about Cisco. Amazon is not a networking company. I would imagine there are things that I can get out of Cisco networking, for example, that I cannot get out of Amazon's networking. Uh, Maybe you can tell me if that's true. And what... What I would do about that, is there a way to set up some kind of, you know, because I think of Cisco networking as like a hardware type of uh, solution. So how would I connect that to to a cloud? Sure. So uh, some of the vendors, not, not all of them, but some of the vendors have done a really good job adapting to the cloud. Um, you know, an example would be like, like with AWS, those security groups I mentioned earlier, the, the software firewalls. They're not very dynamic. They, they, don't, they don't do like attack inspection and, and things like that. So they're pretty limited compared to a real firewall. Then you look at a Cisco firewall, like an ASA, and they're powerful. They, they do a lot of different really cool things. So what Cisco did is they released what's called the ASA-V, the, the virtual form of their ASA firewall. And it's really just a virtual machine that you can spin up as an instance inside of AWS, or they do it in Azure too and in some of the other providers, so that now you get the full feature set of a Cisco firewall. Um, and, and it's not just firewalls. I, I use that as an example, but um, I know F5 has done it with some of their big IP devices, their load balancers. So you've got the, offer, the, the functionality from the cloud provider that might be limited, but then you can go out and license these. It's not free, right? But we can license the F5, Cisco, Juniper, Checkpoint, um, which I think Checkpoint is now Dell. But you know, each of those providers, they have those virtual appliances you can fire up and really get the extra, the extra oomph that you need to, to either secure or better manage your network. Hmm. So let's talk about actually setting up instances of compute on Amazon or Azure or Google or whatever we're talking about. How do I select the right instance type? How am I going to, I mean, this is going to be a question I'm going to have to answer regardless of what cloud provider I choose. Right. Um, It's kind of challenging, right? Because one of the things they all advertise is how easy it is to scale up. Uh, You know, with the cloud, there's two ways of scaling. You can scale up or scale out. If I have a server that's under spec, if it doesn't have enough memory, I can just add more memory to it. That's scaling up. But there's a, a limit, a threshold that we hit eventually where you've added as much memory as you can and there's no more we can add. And the solution then is to scale out, to add more servers. And so instead of one server, now I have two or three or 500, depending on the type of service that I'm running. If I'm Twitter, then I'm going to need 500 servers or even more. And if I'm an overnight success, right, a, a, a dot-com that just all of a sudden goes viral, 
I might need five servers one day and 500 servers the next day. So being able to scale out like that's really important. And choosing your instance type is really going to influence how you scale because you might choose an instance type that has tons of memory or tons of CPU and then you need less servers because it's, you know, they're each more powerful. Or I might choose to go with a lower end instance type, maybe one that only has two or four gigs of RAM and four CPUs, right? That, that's not a very beefy server for me, but I might choose that because I know I can scale out and add more of them as I need it. And the way I normally look at it is if you have consistent utilization, so if it's like a business server, business servers are pretty consistent load from eight to five each day and, and we know what they're going to need. I'll usually go with larger instance types on that, so we're not scaling as often. But if you're a dot-com, if, if you don't know what your usage is going to be like tomorrow or if it widely varies, right? I, I know our IT Pro TV servers vary pretty significantly. And so there might be peak times and slow times. And if you want to get your real money's worth, you'll do smaller instances, two CPUs, maybe four CPUs, two gigs or four gigs of RAM. And you might have five running at 6 a.m., and 50 running at noon. And then by the time you get to 6 p.m., you're back down to five again that you can scale up and down based on demand. And that's going to be really flexible if you have smaller instances. But you've got to plan your software to survive that. And not all software is written to be scaled out like that. So you've got to really kind of plan for that early on in the engineering phase of your software. You mentioned the IT Pro TV servers. uh, And it's kind of interesting because you know, my, I just, I'm doing a software engineering podcast, which is a media company, but I don't really have to, I don't think much about, I don't have to, I don't have any Amazon instances running, for example, but it's interesting because your, your job is both, it sounds like you're both uh, a teacher on IT Pro TV. I've watched a lot of the videos. They're very interesting, very informative, but do you also spend a lot of time on the software architecture of the site? Um, I wouldn't say a lot of time anymore. I, I, I built a lot of it early on and I've stayed involved with it throughout because for me, it's important to keep my skill set relevant. It, if you teach too much, then when do you learn, right? And so so I, I like to keep my keep my hands in the business and, and work with that. Uh, I also just find it really interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of my hobby. I, I like to work with the technologies and see what's going on. And so with our IT Pro TV servers, I have an infrastructure here that We've got a staff of four developers and a handful of IT guys, and they really manage our equipment. Some of it we outsource. We use we use cloud providers that take care of a lot of our, our stuff that we just don't have time for. I don't have time to mon- monitor hard drive health. And so we use cloud service. So we don't have to monitor that. But we do have to monitor our site utilization and see if things are getting busy and plan for scale. And, and we leverage that. Now, we actually have a bit of a hybrid solution here where some of our stuff is on Media Temple, which is a hosting provider. And then the bulk of our stuff is in Amazon Web Services. We use that. We have a little bit in Microsoft Azure, but not very much. So we're, we're mostly AWS and Media Temple. Mm. <clears throat> and you mentioned the, you know, the fact that you're going to be scaling up or scaling down depending on how traffic happens in your service. And you know, I, I've done some shows about Netflix, and this is a massive uh, thing that Netflix has under consideration because they have such variable load throughout the day. I imagine it's somewhat similar with IT Pro TV. Probably people maybe watch it more in the evening after they get home from work, or maybe they watch it at lunch. Um, and so you are scaling up and down. And in the conversations I've had with the serverless people recently, serverless. 
people are, are concerned with getting even more out of their utilization. Um, do you do you feel like you're you're still maybe winding up with a with a good amount of uh, serve of compute that you're not utilizing, despite the fact that you've got uh, maybe compute resources scaling up and down? It it does happen, and I don't think you can avoid it. And, and here's the reason: is let's say that I evaluate my system and I see that it's running at ninety nine percent utilization, right? Maybe I've got ten servers. We're we're pegged out at ninety nine percent. If I need to bring up an eleventh server, even if I've got the the fully generalized clone ready to power on right then, I I have to wait for it to power on, right? We we boot it up, and if it's if it's a Linux instance and it is highly tuned, it's still going to take 30 to 35 seconds to, to speed up. So for about 30 seconds, my users are going to get poor performance. And then this 11th server comes up and joins the pool. And now the next person that visits the website, they're going to get a great experience. But my last user, they had a bad experience. They had a bad experience. That's what triggered the, the scale event. So you have to catch it early. And you have to say, I, I can't wait till I'm at 99%. I need to do it at 80%. So when we're at 80% load, go ahead and spin up maybe not just one server, maybe two servers or a batch of five servers. Spin them up, and that way my current users get a good experience, and the next user gets a good experience. And yeah, I, I, I wasted a little money. I paid for some resources we didn't use, but I was ready for the load, and I made sure that my end users had that good experience because uh, you know you, you have a website, we have a website. What, what happens when a user comes to your site and it's slow to load? They just hit the back button and they go to the next Google link that was, you know, in the search results. People don't wait anymore. They don't want to and they, they shouldn't have to. So you waste some resources. And on scaling down, it's the same thing. So the site starts to get a little idle and maybe not as many people are logged in. So we think, OK, well, we could go ahead and shut down one or two servers. But if we start shutting down a server and all of a sudden load picks back up, we're like, oh, we acted too fast. We need those servers to come back online. And now you've got to wait for that, too. And 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 I, I say it like we're doing it by hand, but this is all automated, right? It's all done on performance numbers. So let's talk some about the parameters that you were focusing on when you were choosing the instance types for IT Pro TV, for example, or um, maybe just more generally. What are the parameters that people should focus on when they're choosing what computes to spin up? So... We kind of made some mistakes early on and, and learned from it. I uh, We had a very database-driven site back then. We were using a, a relational database. And so everything everything on our site was really tied into a, a MySQL instance. And so when I was picking instance types, I was really focused on disk I.O. It was important to me to get SS, SSDs. And um, you know on, on Amazon and on Azure, you have IOPS, the input outputs per second that you kind of reserve. So normally you're competing with other, other customers of that provider to access the disk. But if you reserve IOPS, then you have that dedicated disk access that's available to you. So I really focused in on that. And I shouldn't have done that. In, in hindsight, that was, that was me being a, a server guy. When we started working with some of the developers and our team started to grow, we got some more people in who said, you know, the website would be a lot faster if we moved away from a relational database and went to like a NoSQL type solution. And uh, we ended up moving over to MongoDB for a lot of things. And as soon as we did that, our disk I.O. really dropped to, to almost nothing and our, our, our speed of access really kind of skyrocketed. We went to a, a single page Angular app for our website, which pushed a lot of the processor work off to the clients as opposed to having the servers do it. And so once all that was done, 
disk IO is, I, I don't even really monitor our disk IO anymore just because it's so insignificant and it's CPU and memory that we watch, which those are easy to watch because that's usually what you're being billed on. Hmm. Great. Okay. Um, so what about storage? What are the different types of storage that a cloud provider typically offers? All right. So on the storage side, it used to be that everything would default to magnetic storage, right? Spinning disk. And then they started offering SSDs as a premium. But about a year ago, Amazon and Microsoft too, they've started to shift to where everything's SSD. You can still choose magnetic if you want, but SSD is the way that it's gone. And uh, Amazon did some really cool stuff with this because they said, all right, we want to move everybody over to SSD. The prices come down and, and it's pretty much the same as magnetic now. So let's just move everybody over to that. So if you provision a, a instance on AWS right now, it's going to default to SSD. And that's normally what you want. But they had all this magnetic storage left over from before. And so they didn't throw it away. They kept it. You can still choose to use it. But they also moved a lot of it over to their Amazon Glacier service, the low-cost storage, so that you can throw data on there and they, they put a lot of information out on it so that it still gets used. But you'll see that SSD is normally the choice. You won't see selections for things like choosing what RAID array. You know, you won't get to pick RAID 0 or RAID 5 or whatever. They, they deal with all that behind the scenes and they provide that redundancy often more than what RAID can provide because they'll give you redundancy across more than one uh, fault domain. So, for example, with Azure, if you go in Azure and spin up an instance, your storage, there's actually three copies of it. There'll be a copy on one rack, or they call it a slice, so on one slice in their data center. There'll be a second copy in another slice right there in the same data center. And there'll be a third copy that's held offline in a completely separate data center. And that's all done without you even looking at it. So you create your storage. You pick, if it's SSD or magnetic, you pick the IOPS that you want to reserve. They handle all the redundancy on the back end, and it's as simple as that. Hmm. So... Speaking in terms of AWS, there's a few storage types on AWS. They're called Instance Store and Elastic Block Storage. What guarantees does Amazon give us around the durability of these storage types? All right. So uh, Instance Storage is what we used to call the ephemeral storage. And it's kind of gone away except for the operating system partition. So when you spin up a VM, it's got an operating system partition that's already created on it. And Amazon doesn't guarantee the data that's on that partition. If you reboot the VM, the data will stay there. But if there's a crash on Amazon's side, they're going to move your instance to another server. And when that happens, the odds are you're going to lose anything that was on that instance storage. It's just going to be gone. That ephemeral storage gets wiped out. Uh, think of it as like what's in RAM. You know, when you reboot a computer, you lose what's in RAM. A lot of times that's what happens with the instance storage. Now, there are ways to make it persist and you can get it to last longer, but if you really want to keep your data, you need to be using EBS, and that's the elastic block storage. And when you create an instance, it'll usually have an EBS volume attached to it. The majority of them do. And then you can add more than one, and you can make them as large as you want or as small as you want. And when you provision them on the EBS side, that's where you can pick how many IOPS you want to reserve and get that set. So always be careful of that. That It doesn't matter which cloud provider you go with. All of them have it. They typically do have some kind of temporary storage versus some kind of persistent storage. And it's really rare that you want to use the temporary storage. An example would be a um, like a load balancing cluster where I'm spinning up nodes and maybe it's a, a, a cluster of web servers, right? And so I might choose to store my website's files in that temporary storage. I bring the web server up and it's got the website in there. Maybe I use rsync or something like that to synchronize the page into that temporary storage when the web server comes up. 
And when it's done, I'm going to terminate that instance anyway. I'm going to delete it. And so I don't need to keep the storage. It doesn't matter to me if it's temporary or permanent. And so the the node goes away and that data goes away and that's fine. I can do that and I don't incur any of the extra storage charges of using EBS. But storage is so cheap these days that unless you're dealing with terabytes upon terabytes of data, it's usually just worth it to use the persistent storage. Talking more broadly, in what situations do I need to think about making my data more or less redundant? Well, you know, there's always the risk that if we put our storage up with a store, with a, a cloud provider, that we know that they're trying to make it redundant, that they're backing it up, but we're kind of trusting that they're going to take care of that, right? So it's a good idea for you to make sure that you've got some kind of backup that is separate from that provider, because providers do they do fail. They, you know, things do happen. Uh, Microsoft had a really visible failure. It was, uh, I think, 10 or 12 years ago where they had some uh, SAN appliances die out and they weren't able to restore backups and they actually lost customer data, a lot of customer data. Uh, Amazon has had situations where they went down and theirs, they weren't storage or hardware. They were routing issues where you just couldn't get to your equipment. So it didn't matter if you had a backup. You couldn't get to the backup. That it was, it was kind of partitioned and walled off. And so it's a good idea to make your storage redundant yourself in addition to relying on, on what the cloud provider does. If the cloud provider system works right and you have a failure, restoring from their backup is always going to be faster. That's the one we want to use. But – it's a good idea to back up your data and either store it on-premises or store it in uh, another data center for that provider. You know, they've all got multiple data centers around the globe. And so you can store your copies in other data centers like that. Or you can hedge your bets across more than one provider. That's what that's what Apple did with iCloud. When they launched the iCloud service, they didn't have the data centers to support that. So they put half of it in AWS and half of it in Azure. And they spread it between those two different providers. And they, they still do that today. So when you access your iCloud services, you're being spread between the two. So if one entire provider were to fail, they don't have to worry about going and restoring all that storage, all that data. It, it's already in the other cloud provider. And just flip right over to it seamlessly and off you go. And it sounds like that's – is that also what you do at IT Pro TV or are you are you high, uh, multi-cloud for a different reason? We are – we're multi-cloud for a different reason. Um, we, we're not quite large enough. You know, our scale isn't quite large enough to need that yet. And our, our, our product isn't as critical to need that. So uh, what I mean by that is if you're a hospital, if you're dealing with fi- uh, financial records and you go offline for a period of time – there's regulations that dictate how long you're allowed to be offline. If you are, well, if you're Amazon, right, they have a web-based storefront. If they go offline, they're losing millions of dollars for every hour they're offline. That's a big deal. For IT Pro TV, if we go offline for an hour, it's actually not that big of a deal. Sure, you know, our users aren't going to be happy about that, but they're not losing money. We, we lose a little bit of money because we didn't get subscribers for that hour, but we'll come back online an hour later and we're fine. So we can survive an outage like that and be okay. It's all about understanding what your recovery time objective, your RTO is, you know, how long can you afford to be offline? If you can't afford to be offline at all, then you need to be multi-cloud, multi-provider. You know, you need to spread across more than one. Don't trust multiple data centers with the same provider. You need to be on more than one provider, right? But if you can afford even an hour of downtime, then it's typically okay to have all of your resources in a single provider and just use more than one data center in that same provider. Or if you can afford an entire day of downtime, the the bank that I work for, we were FDIC insured and the FDIC rules stated that we could be down 
for 72 hours. It's three days. A bank could be shut down for three days. And as long as they were back up at that 72nd hour, it was okay, right? The customers could get mad if they wanted, but it was okay. But if you went to 73 hours, that's when the FDIC came over and took over the bank and said, all right, we're taking over operations. So if you have three days, you could you could be running off of one server for that matter, you know, and you could restore <laughs> from a tape backup. <laughs> There's a lot of flexibility. Yeah, how many nines is that? That's probably like not even uh, it's probably two, less than no, yeah, that's two not, nines <laughs> one nine I, I don't think it's two yeah <laughs> interesting um so so it sounds like you're saying that uh, unless you have extremely high availability requirements you don't need to go multi-cloud you can go single cloud and have redundancy across multiple data centers multiple availability zones yep that's right and you know, so for us, we use Media Temple. When, when you go to our website, the main website is being rendered from Media Temple. And we've actually got the Media Temple servers spread between their East Coast and their West Coast data center. So that's one provider, two different data centers. But then all of our database, all of our actual content is being rendered out of our, our media servers. And that's all on AWS. And on AWS, we actually use data centers all over the world because if somebody goes to watch a video you want them to get the video from something that's geographically close from them. If they're in Australia, we want them to be watching the video from a server in Australia. Pulling our web page, it's okay for them to come to the U.S. for the web page. But for a, you know, a high-definition video, that needs to be a little closer to them. So we use a different provider for that, and we spread it across the world. And that's just because of the needs of the, the customer, not so much our needs. Let's talk about load balancing. Um, what kinds of setup did we have to do for load balancing in the past prior, you know, before we had cloud service providers making this into a software issue, what was load balancing like? So I, I worked with my first load balancer back in 2000, right, right at the end of the dot-com bubble burst, you know, when everybody was failing, because that was the first time that I was able to get a hold of load balancers that cost less than $50,000, right? They were, they were insanely expensive. And when all these companies went out of business, that's when it, it became where normal people could get them. Um, it was really challenging to get and work with them back then. Things have changed so much. Now you can fire up any open source Linux box and turn it into a load balancer and it doesn't cost anything and it performs great. Um, there's companies like F5 that have their big IP appliances that are amazing appliances to work with where you can take your data center and stretch it across multiple locations around the globe. It'll load balance them out. You get full redundancy. It's amazing stuff. It's complex, but it's amazing. But you can go into AWS or into Azure and you can use their software load balancers and achieve the same thing in just a handful of clicks. So the load balancers aren't as complex anymore. The only hard part with a load balancer is figuring out how you want to balance because that's pretty challenging. You know, when it comes to a website, People hit your website, they open up a TCP session, that that little uh, handshake and, and port association opens up and it stays open for a handful of seconds and then it idles and closes. And so load balancing each of the users, it depends on whether they're staying on your site a long time or just staying on your site for a few seconds, whether or not you'll be able to get even load balancing. And where it really starts to get challenging is each time that user comes back to the site, you kind of want to steer them back to the same server they were on so their session stays active. Otherwise, you've got to store a lot of data in the cookies on their own machine. And cookies are getting more and more challenging to use every year as we have privacy concerns and, and other things. So if we want to do a cookie-less website, 
we've got to be able to track somebody's connection and it's up to the load balancer to do that. And if our software is encrypted, what's the load balancer going to see? It's going to see encrypted data and it's not going to be able to help us. So now it's just going to randomly send people to different servers and that creates a jarring experience for the end user. So a lot of times the hardest part of configuring a load balancer is just the fact that you've got to put your SSL private keys into it so that you can decrypt the traffic and the load balancer can actually see what it is to send people right back to the right location. So there's some security concerns there. But once it's in place, as long as you control the load balancer and you control the web servers, it's the same degree of security you'd have with the unencrypted traffic. So when I'm setting up my application on a cloud provider, what are the steps that I am going to need to go through to set up a load balancer? So typically what you're going to have to do is uh, well, you know, create multiple servers. And you, you may start with just one server if you're doing like an auto-scale type environment. Or if you just say, I'm going to bring up three servers and load balance, right? Uh, I might want three servers in three different locations, and that's where I'm going to go. So then you're going to create a load balancer, and you'll have to join those instances to the load balancer. So they, they kind of uh, have to participate in it. And that's nice because when you bring up a new instance, it might not be ready to go into the load balancer right away. You might need to run some scripts on it to get it ready to update the latest copy of your web page or update the database or whatever it is you need to do to get ready for it. And then it gets brought in to the load balancer so that it starts participating. You don't want to send traffic to a node before that node is actually ready. So that's step one is, is you create the load balancer, you join your instances to it, and then you've got to create a series of rules that dictate how your traffic is load balanced uh, and what ports you want to load balance on. And if it's a website, you know it's port 80 and port 443. But if you've written a custom application that uses different ports, you'll need to load balance for those. And with, with web traffic, it can look at things like cookies and session variables to send, figure out where to send the traffic. But if it's your own proprietary application – the load balancer is going to have no idea how your application works. And so it's going to be up to you to add the infrastructure to that load balancer to let it know, hey, when somebody connects on this port, we need to load balance it across these systems and we need to track what's called affinity. Make sure they always go back to the same node. Or maybe you don't need affinity and it doesn't matter which node they go to. You'll have to configure the load balancer to set that. And then the most critical part is once the load balancer is fully configured, you need to monitor it. Monitor it and make sure it's actually working because I've seen a lot of people where they get their load balancer set up and they think it's balancing, but all their traffic's actually being sent to one node and it's not balancing the way they think that it is. After that, the last thing that we need to do is the health side of things. If a node fails, we don't want to send traffic to that node anymore, right? Because uh, otherwise, let's say we have three servers, a third of our people would be going to a bad server and having a bad experience. So the load balancer is going to need to monitor to see if your application is still online. And if your application has gone offline on one of the nodes, it can stop sending traffic to it. And a lot of them will monitor based on HTTP calls. They'll like request a certain web page and look for a text string. But there's other API type ways that we can do a quick query or, or even just a TCP or UDP port check. Can I connect to this port? If I can't, Close it down. But if I can, then the server must be up. But you have to be careful with those. I know MySQL is really bad about this, where sometimes the port will be up and it'll answer, but the database on the back end might be offline. So just the port being up isn't necessarily enough. You've got to figure out what's right for your application to make it understand when a node is down and take it out of the cluster. So what you're saying is customized health checks on those different servers, depending on what the functionality of that server is. Right. Yep. Because otherwise a load balancer just won't, it won't know the difference between healthy and unhealthy. Hmm. 
Okay, so let's talk more about monitoring. What are the features, the the broader features that a cloud service provider gives me to help with monitoring? So on the on the monitoring side, you know, when we set up our on-premises servers, it's up to us to configure monitoring. We've got to get everything set to to do what we need it to do and and if we don't turn on monitoring, then nothing gets monitored. But on the cloud providers, every single one of them will provide a certain level of monitoring. And the reason they do that is because that's how they bill you, right? They, they bill you on how much storage you're using. They bill you on how many CPUs you've allocated. They bill you based on the RAM that you're using. And so they're going to give you at least as much monitoring as needed to calculate your monthly bill. So free of charge, right there, you've at least got that level of monitoring. But you're going to want to go a step further. Um, with Amazon, you have CloudWatch. With the other providers, they have other types of advanced monitoring you can turn on. And they can start to show you things like where you've got bottlenecks. And that's important because most web applications these days are multi-tier applications. So you'll have your web front end. You'll have a database on the back end. You'll have an application server in the middle. You can be bottlenecking anywhere along the lines. So if that happens, you need to be able to figure out what that problem is so you know where to scale or where to improve. And so turning on advanced monitoring will take care of that. It'll usually cost a little extra, but it's not that much. But you also don't have to use the cloud provider services. You could you could go and use something else. Maybe uh, if you've used New Relic before, New Relic's kind of like the, the de facto standard in, in application monitoring. So you could go and throw that in, or I've done um, SolarWinds Network Performance Monitor, even traditional tools like Microsoft System Center Operations Manager. They can, they can all monitor your cloud instances because to them, it's just another server. It just happens to have an external IP. Okay, let's have a broader discussion about these different cloud providers. Um, I've been trying to talk in the abstract about them. I know we often revert to the mean and talk in terms of AWS. Um, but, I mean, let's talk about these this group, these different ones. I mean, are these do you see these cloud providers as commodities? Um, you know, th- there's some of them. Some of the smaller ones are, but a-, a lot of the bigger ones, there are differentiators out there. Like, if I had to pick between... Um, you know, which cloud provider I'm going to use today. So you've got some of the big ones, the, the Googles and Microsoft and uh, uh, Amazon. You've got the, the, the next level down where you've got people like uh, Rackspace and Linode. There's a ton of them. And then there's probably somebody in your town local that provides cloud services too it, because it's become so, so kind of well-spread. So how do you pick which one? And unfortunately, they're not really all created equally. They all have a variety of services, and some are massive. They have a ton of different services you can choose from. Some have a very small amount of services, and and it's really going to influence how you make a choice. So when you go to Amazon, AWS probably has the largest selection of services available. So they've got hosted databases and infrastructure as a service as well as software as a service and platform as a service. They've got all the different components in there. Um, They've got all that stuff available, and you can kind of pick and choose. But the one thing they don't have is they don't have where you can get somebody to help you with your system. So if I'm having a problem getting Apache to run on my server, they can't help me with that. But if I went with Rackspace or if I went with Media Temple or someone like that, they might not provide as many services, but they have support services where I can pay an hourly fee or whatever, and they'll have a technician help me find out why Apache is not running on that instance or or something. So if I want a, a little more of a personal experience, I might go with a smaller provider. But if I want breadth of services, then I'll go with somebody bigger like uh, like AWS. So that's really going to influence that choice. And then also the age of the service. Uh, if it is a 
Um, if it's somebody like Amazon that's been in it for 10 or 15 years, then you know they've pretty much got it under control. But if they've only been doing it for one year, well, their infrastructure might still be growing and they haven't truly been tested for redundancy or reliability. So that becomes a, a thing we have to look out for as we, as we pick which provider we're going with. When you think about the three big ones, Amazon, Azure, and Google, what do you see as the competitive differentiators between those three? All right. So each one has their own little advantages. Um, I would say that Amazon certainly wins for having breadth of services. They're going to give you the most options when you go with the cloud. They've really got that covered. Um, on the Microsoft side with Azure, there's they're still an evolving service. It's fairly new. Their web UI is changing at a very rapid rate. But if you're going to be doing Windows deployments, they really are the best choice because they're going to give you a break on the licensing cost and they're really built Windows-centric. Although they've been seeing a, a huge amount of Linux servers deployed in their environment on a, a greater and greater basis as time goes on. So they're really kind of doing both. But they, they do Windows really well. When you reach out to Google... Google probably does scale the best. Nobody handles volume of traffic like Google does, but they haven't really done the full dive into services, so it's really limited what we can get. You know, They'll give you raw compute instances, but they don't have all the other fringe services and things, and that's, that's starting to change with their container offerings that they're doing, but uh, kind of as it is right now, it's a smaller service set, just scales larger. How do you think that container stuff is going to shape out? Because obviously Google has the... Uh, expertise in Kubernetes, but, uh, you know, like you said, they may not have as much um, experience with public cloud, but they certainly have as much experience with their own cloud as they can possibly have. I think they're actually, they're starting to, they're starting to externalize, or, well, I shouldn't say externalize, they're starting to move some of their, so they had this, you know, they had this thing, Borg, which turned into Kubernetes. Borg was their internal container management service, and they're starting to move services off of Borg and onto Kubernetes on Google Compute Cloud. So they're so they're kind of dogfooding their cloud. But how, how do you think this container stuff is going to shake out? How is that going to evolve the different, um, the competition among the big three? I think that, uh, I think the containers are the future, right? So two or three years from now, software will be deployed as a container. That's just how it's going to be. We, we already see it today, but we're going to see it more and more. The containers are the way to go. But they're kind of suffering from what Linux distributions suffer from, where there's so many different great Linux distributions to pick from, and each one does stuff just a little bit different. And that's how the container solutions are, is that each one is just a little bit different. So when we get a, a visible winner, which most people say that Docker is the winner, but Kubernetes has some great features in it, especially when it comes to uh, like load balancing and scale, uh, but when we see it start to settle into a, a very well-defined winner, that's going to make a big difference, and that's going to make it where we have a shoe in. I, I've made the comment in our own show that we, we do episodes on how to install Windows or how to install Linux, how to do XYZ tasks. And in a few years, we're not going to do those shows anymore. Hey, who needs to know how to install <laughs> Windows? Who, who needs to know how to install Linux? You just spin up a Linux instance or you spin up a Windows instance, and then you take your containerized app and you – you deploy it on that infrastructure. It's, it, it's that simple. So that environment is changing. But I think if, if you're not working with containers today or if you haven't learned about it, even played around with them, you're doing yourself a disservice. That, that's something you need to be messing with, whether you're Windows, Linux, Mac, doesn't matter. They all support it. Jump over to Docker's website, docker.io, start, start learning. 
So coming back to the present, how does pricing compare across these different providers, the big ones? So the the pricing, it, it's one of those things that amazed me when, when I first started working with, with cloud servers because we're so used to prices going up over time, but cloud prices just seem to continually go down <laughs> over time. They get cheaper and cheaper, especially on the storage side, which is, is where a lot of your uh, cost comes from. Um, bandwidth is where the rest of the cost comes from. And a lot of people forget about that. They look at an instance cost and they they pay for a certain amount of CPU and a certain amount of disk space, not realizing that you get charged for bandwidth too. Data going in, data coming out. Some providers like Amazon, they don't charge for data going in, but they charge to get the data back out again. Um, Microsoft and some of the other guys, they'll charge in both directions. So when you start calculating cost, that's really important. As far as the actual, like, per hour CPU charges and so on, most of the providers are pretty similar. You'll find that Amazon's usually a little less expensive, but the other providers might have features that Amazon doesn't, and that's why they, they're able to justify that. Or when you're doing Windows instances, you have to pay for the Windows license, so that increases the cost. And on on Azure, that's going to be cheaper than on AWS. So you can price check it, but be careful because the prices change a lot. They change very frequently, and they typically go down, so it's a win for us but it's something we have to be aware of. The other thing is when you spin up an instance, all the providers, or at least all the ones I've worked with, they do billing two different ways. You can do what are called on-demand instances or reserved instances. And on-demand, that's where you fire it up and you pay an hourly rate. So if I run it for five hours, I pay for five hours. If I run it for 365 days, I pay for an entire year's worth of access, right? You pay for what you use. But if I shut it down, I'm not paying for it. With a reserved instance, you always pay. You can shut the instance down and you're still going to pay for it. With reserve, you set it aside, but you get it cheaper. So you can save a lot of money by doing reserved instances if you know you're going to use the server for a certain amount of time. So if you know you need it for three months or you know you need it for a year or five years, do a reserved instance and that'll bring your cost down significantly. But if you don't know how long you're going to use it, you don't want to do a two-year reserved instance run it for three months and then figure out you don't need it anymore. And now you're still going to have to pay on it for the rest of that time. And that, that does get to be expensive. Um, I had worked up a spreadsheet at one point when I was trying to explain it because there is a, a break even point. For example, if I'm doing an on-demand instance for three months, if I had done a reserved instance for one year, I could run the node for three months and then turn it off. And it would still be less expensive than if I had done on-demand for three months because the reserved instance gets you such a price break. So you'll have to break out the calculator and, and look at which one's going to work out best for your use case scenario. But don't just assume you need to use on-demand. Most people do. Uh, and it's a mistake. You could save a lot of money by going reserved. Hmm. We've talked about a lot of different aspects of the cloud. We're talking about security and monitoring and cost storage, what are the other fundamental features that we can expect from cloud service providers today and in the future? All right. So the, the things that I always look for, you know, in addition to just the basic hosting, um, what I look for are support, right? You might need where they have some extra techs on hand to be able to help us. And um, with, with Media Temple, they have this service called Cloud Tech. And I know that I can call the Cloud Tech guys at any time. Maybe it's something that I could perfectly well do myself, but I'm just in a hurry. And so I call and say, hey, guys, um, there's this new exploit out for Linux, and I, I don't have time to patch it. I shouldn't say Linux. You know, Maybe it's the uh, OpenSSL, right? So there's an exploit for OpenSSL. Uh, can you guys deploy the patch for me? And they'll say, hey, no problem. We'll do it. 
And that's that's part of the the service agreement that we've got. So look for service agreements. A lot of them will have that where they offer as a feature. Some don't, like AWS doesn't have that. Um, but with AWS, if you step up and do things like their Elastic Beanstalk, they're taking care of the server for you. They're already patching it. So it just kind of depends on what you're looking for there. Um, VPN service is another one. If you have cloud servers, you might need to transmit data to and from your your own corporate location to those servers, and you want to do that securely. You can always spin up your own instance and make like an open VPN server or whatever, but it's nice to have that built into the service, built into the infrastructure so you can connect in. Some of them even have where they'll give you like Cisco ASA or Juniper SSG configs. You can drop right onto your firewall and it builds the tunnel up and it's no big deal. So look for that. Um, also the supported operating systems. If you're a Linux shop, pretty much all the cloud providers do Linux, but maybe you really love SUSE Linux. And you go to a provider and they just do Ubuntu and uh, CentOS, right? So make sure they have the operating systems that you want. There's plenty of them, like, like, like Azure, where maybe I'm a developer and I'm doing testing. And so I need 20 Windows 7 machines. Well, if you have a normal corporate Azure account, it'll only do servers. They won't do desktops. You have to have a developer account to do desktops. They limit that. And they limit that to just Windows 10. I can't do a Windows 7 VM on Azure. So... Depending on the OS I want, it might not be available with that provider. So always look to make sure they support the, the OSs that you need. Okay, Don. Well, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation, and I'm happy to have IT Pro TV as a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I think it's a really good fit. I watch IT Pro TV, and I thoroughly enjoy it. So, uh, and you're, you're a great teacher, by the way. I think you're, you're an <laughs> exceptional, exceptional lecturer, gifted public speaker. So. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate it, and, and I appreciate you having me on here. I always enjoy talking about technologies, and you know, the cloud stuff is exciting. That, that's things that people like to hear about. So uh, thanks for having me.